This morning we are uh, continuing our sermon series uh, looking at the life of Abraham, and we're in Genesis chapter 14. So you can feel free to open up to Genesis 14. I want to start this morning talking about something which might make you a little bit shocked that I would bring this up. Does anybody know? We'll do it this way. Raise your hand. You can raise your hand. We're, yes, Aaron, thank you. <laughs> raise your hand if you know what LARPing is. Oh, all right. Okay. A good amount of people know what LARPing is. LARP, L-A-R-P, is an acronym. It's, it stands for Live Action Role Playing. LARPing. Live action role playing. So the context that um, that I know about this from are like this. I've I've never, well, yeah, I've I've never LARPed in my life. I think it would be a lot of fun too, and I'll explain why. But LARPing. Let's say there's a group of friends and um, they really like Star Wars. This group of friends they really like Star Wars. And they like it so much that they make their own Star Wars costumes of all their favorite characters, and they make or they buy lightsabers, and they buy fake laser guns, and they meet at a park, and they have a battle. Like, literally, there's a light side and a dark side, and it, it, it could look like Pastor Steven, Pastor Phil, and myself running around at Bradley Lake in Star Wars costumes, hitting each other physically with lightsabers. That's what LARPing is. Now, I personally think that sounds like a lot of fun, like the idea of me dressed as Darth Vader, chasing Pastor Phil through the woods with a lightsaber. That sounds like a good day. That's, that's, like a, that's a good Saturday. The thing is, is uh, as much fun as I would have LARPing and dressing up like Darth Vader and chasing Pastor Phil... Something that I would make sure, something that I would need to remember as I'm doing that is that I am not actually Darth Vader. That, that's, that would be a very important thing. I think my wife would question my sanity if I started calling myself Darth Vader because I dressed up like Darth Vader. It, 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 what I'm saying is in, in LARPing, I'm not living in reality. Rather, I'm role-playing. It, when somebody is, is LARPing, they're acting like something is true, which is not true, right? So I might be dressed like Darth Vader, and I might breathe like Darth Vader, and I might run like Darth Vader, but I am not Darth Vader, and my lightsaber is not real. That's a very important thing to remember. I think, though, at various points in all of our lives, we can all act like LARPers. For example, dads, when you push your kids in the shopping cart at Target and make car sounds so that mom can get her shopping done, you are LARPing. You are role-playing. You are acting as if something is true, which is not true. The cart is not a car, and your sounds do not sound like a car. It's not, you, you're, you're not living in line with reality in that moment. You're role-playing. I also think that we can LARP in reverse. 
We, we can live and act as if something is not true, which actually is true. So, for example, cosmetics and Rogaine. They allow us to look as if we are not aging, but in reality, we are aging. I am past the point of Rogaine saving me. It's, it's reality as, we, as you see it. To LARP in either direction, but to not be aware that you're doing so, right? To think that when you're role-playing, that you're living in reality, is that would just like make a whole mess of your life. And in our text before us today, we're going to see Abram, who's yet to be named Abraham, uh, and he is not LARPing. Abraham is not LARPing. He's anything but LARPing. He's anything but a LARPer. He doesn't LARP in either direction. Abram, in our text today, he actually, what we see is he's living in line with reality. Um, We're going to see that he, Abram so stakes his life on God and on God's promises that it leads to a bold and courageous lifestyle of faith, which is given to us as an example to follow. So the big idea this morning is simple. It's this. It should, yep, there it is. Live boldly like God's promises are real. Because they are. Live boldly like God's promises are real. And we're going to explore this in two parts. First, we're going to see uh, how God's promises affected the way that Abram lived, like the way that he acted. And then we're going to look at how they affect where his loyalties lie, how they affected his affections. So we're going to look at his living and his loyalties. So we start this way. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. I will try to pronounce all of the foreign names correctly. In the days of Amphrel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Chedorlamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of, of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chalordomir, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chalordomir and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnium, and, and Zuzim and Ham, and Emim and Sheveth Kirtharim. And the Horites in their hill country of Siar, as far as Elperon, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in, Hez- and, uh, and, and, and Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim which Elordomir, king of, 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 of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amphrael, king of Shinar, and, and Ariok, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of, of, of butchman pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his, and his possessions and went their way. You'll notice there's, in 
the text that we just read, there's a lot of details, names, places, etc. Essentially, what's going on here is a story that revolves around two groups of kings which are in battle with each other. There's a group of four kings from the east, led by Chalordomir, or however you say his name, and five opposing kings who were ruled at one time by these four eastern kings. And important to note first is that the author here um, points out the landmarks where these battles are taking place. And as we're reading these landmarks, we start to realize that, oh, these kings, they're battling. And specifically, these four kings from the east, they're in the land of Canaan. They're in the land, they're invading the land that God has promised to Abraham, to Abram and his descendants. In one sense, we could look at these four kings and say that they're LARPers. They're LARPing. They're acting as if the land of promise, the land of Canaan, belongs to them. They've entered the land of Canaan, and they're acting like kings over that land. And in one sense, then, they're LARPing, because that's not reality. God has not given them this land, but they're acting as if it's theirs. So we can look at this, and it would seem like the promises of God given to Abram in chapters 12 and 13 of Genesis so far, well, and specifically the promise that God's going to give him the promised land of Canaan. Well, this promise is now coming under attack. <clears throat> You'll notice um, as well that the author wants us to see how powerful these four kings from the east are. So twice, so you'll see verses 5 to 7 and then verses 10 to 12. Uh, two times in the text that we read, the kings are just obliterating everybody in their path. They're just, they're blowing it up. They're conquering. First, they defeat nations in the promised land in verses 5 through 7, and then they defeat these five kings in verses 10 through 12, the five kings that rebelled against them, which includes the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And the reason that this all has relevance for Abram's life is that when we get to verse 12, we see that this starts to touch his life because they took Abram's nephew, Lot. So these four powerful kings from the east, they defeat Sodom, and Lot, in chapter 13, decided to live right near Sodom. Here in chapter 14, it says he's living in Sodom. And we find out that Sodom is a wicked place. So, So Lot has decided to live there. Sodom gets defeated by these four kings, and so they take Lot and everything that Lot owns with them. And so not only is God's promise about land coming under fire, but now, if you remember in, verse, in chapters 12 and 13, Abram got promises from God not only about land, but about his family, about his descendants. Another promise that God has given to Abram is coming under attack. God told him that his family would grow into a great nation, and specifically that that great nation would come about in the promised land. And now some of the only family that Abram has up to this point in the story is taken away. So things just got real for Abram. Not only are the four kings acting as if the promised land is theirs, but now they took Abram's family. They took Lot. So the question is, how does Abram respond to all this? And that's where verse 13 picks up. It says this, 
Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the Oaks of Mamre, uh, by the Oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, that's Lot, he led forth his trained men, born in his, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them back to Hobach, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his, his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So how does Abram respond to these promises of God that have been given to him coming under attack? How does he respond to this international conflict that has now come to his front door, that is on his doorstep? How does Abram respond? He acts like he's the king of Canaan, right? He just, he waltzes in like he owns the place. He's got a meager force of 318 guys, and he defeats these four kings in one night and gets Lot back and all the spoils of war. And this is like tons of stuff. He gets all the stuff from these kings that were defeated, all of Lot and his stuff, and then all these people. So whereas in our text so far, so in verses 1 to 4, you see the author setting up, there's four kings versus five, and then in verses 8 to 9, again, four kings versus five, well then you get to verses 13 and on, and it's one guy versus four. One king versus four. And that one king, Abram, totally whoops these four kings. And it's completely absurd if you're reading the story. It's completely absurd and unfathomable. Five can't defeat four, but one can. It just, like, it just doesn't add up. But that's exactly the point of, of the text. Against all odds, against all logic, against all that is sensible, Abram, armed with the promises of God, right? He, like he's confident that God has made him king of the land. Abram, armed with that, what does he do? He starts acting like the king of the land. And he goes in and he conquers. He walks on in like he owns the place because God says that he does. God wrote him a big old check and he's taking that baby to the bank. He's going to cash it in. He's living and acting like God's promises are real. Brothers and sisters, Abram is presented to us here as an example of what faith in God's promises should look like in real life. Abram's example here reminds us not only that we can live like God's promises are true, but that we should live like they are true, because they are. Right? To not live as if God's promises are true, as those who have been redeemed by him, to not live that way is actually to implicitly claim that God is a liar. It's to live in denial. It's to live in an alternate, untrue reality. It's to act like a LARPer and not know that you're LARPing. It's just a game and not real life. God has given to us powerful and precious promises and he calls us, like God actually wants us to take him up on his offers. It's not like God gave these promises to Abram and was like, 
yeah, but just like don't do anything about it. God gives him these promises, and now Abram's actually acting in line with them. God says, you're king of Canaan. I'm giving you the land. So Abram goes in, and he acts like the king of Canaan. God wants us to take take the checks that he's written to us and cash them in. Like we have freedom from God to stake everything, stake our whole life on his promises, on his word, to live boldly and dangerously and radically like God's promises are actually true because they are. It's taking the promises of God seriously. It's It's believing that God's word saves. It's trusting that God is preparing a new home for us, that we have an inheritance in heaven that is uncorruptible, undefiled, and kept safe for us. It's taking to heart Jesus' words that he is with us unto the end of the age. Bold faith in in those things, in those promises from God's word, has led countless men and women to leave behind family, friends, belongings, comforts, to go to foreign lands to proclaim the gospel to those who have never heard it, sacrificing their lives. Believing that God is sovereign, that he reigns, that he is ruling, that he is not surprised and caught off guard by the many things that catch us off guard. It's, it's trust and faith in the fact that God is sovereign that has led many in the midst of hardship and suffering and pain to lean even more so into God and to trust him, right? It's, it's the belief that God is sovereign that leads us as his children to a place of contentment and peace in the midst of political and social and financial chaos. Or to take it from a different angle, for, for many of us here this morning, um, I just, I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder for many of us how our lives might be changed if we lived like the gospel were true. Mike McKinley, in a recent book that was released called Friendship with God, he, he takes the words of Puritan uh, John Owen and he updates them for modern audience. And, and one of the things that he mentions is, is, this, is this idea that believers should often think of the greatness of God's love. It's, it's, it's the idea that as, as believers, we, we are actually allowed, you're allowed to frequently let your mind wander to the greatness of God's love for you in Christ. And for some of us, doing that is actually hard, right? For, for some of us, it's, it's actually easier to let our minds focus on the severity of our sins, and it's harder for us to focus on the sweetness of our Savior and yet, the reality is, is that it's, it's actually possible for us to focus so much on the reality of sin and the sin in our lives that we miss and actually minimize the reality of the depth of God's love for us in Christ. And so then we start living as if God doesn't love us. When we know and regularly look at the care and compassion of God for us as believers. When we thank God often that he has made us his children, and when God makes you his child, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the, for, for the forgiveness of your sins, God irrevocably makes you his child. When we're confident that God's declaration over us 
as Romans 8.1 says, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, when we actually believe that that's true, when we see God for the loving Father that he truly is, how can that not produce in us a greater desire to seek fellowship with him? Or as Mike McKinley says, if you really understood how much the Father loves you, you would be delighted to be in his presence often. Right? Just as Abram acted like the king of Canaan because God says he was, we also can act like beloved children of God. Like we can and should act like God's promises are true and that they are real. So we see in this first part of chapter 14, Abram's faith in God's promises led him to act and to live in a certain way. It it led to bold, faith-based actions. But it's not just his living that was affected by his faith in God's promises. As we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, um, Abram's desires were also dictated by his faith in God's word. He not only acted like God's promises were real in his living, but then he also let his affections, what he wanted, his heart, he let the direction of his heart be determined by God's promises. And in this, we see where his loyalties lie. And so we're going to read verses, um, verse 17 through the end of the chapter. After his return from the defeat of Chalordomir and the kings who were with him, the, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. So the king of Sodom is going out to meet Abram at the valley of Shevech, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, who, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. <clears throat> and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram, after defeating these four kings from the east, he comes back and these two kings, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, come out to greet Abraham as, Abram as the, victor, as the victor of war. And <clears throat> notice they have two very different um, backgrounds and they have two very different responses to Abraham to, as this victor of war. So first we see Melchizedek, who hasn't been mentioned in this story up till now, but he was from a place called Salem, which is, many think, and I think they're right, is the city of Jerusalem, which was in this region. Melchizedek, it says he's, he's a king of Salem, but he's also, we see here, he's a priest. So he's what we would call a priest king. He's a priest king, not just of any god, but of God most high of the one true God. And literally, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And Salem is, this, is a city of peace. 
So just in this guy's name and his background and where he's from, all that alone speaks to the kind of man that this individual is and what he represents. And Melchizedek, we we see him doing what priests do. Priests are mediators. They, they, They mediate between God and people. And here specifically, we see Melchizedek approaching Abram and bestowing blessing on him from the one true God. He's priesting. He is mediating. He is blessing Abram. He's giving God's blessing to Abram. And so Melchizedek basically comes out and he honors Abram. He, he brings him bread and wine, which is the, the, the food of a king. He, he bestows God's blessing on him, and then he gives praise to the one true God for the victory that he gave to Abram. And then in contrast, we see the king of Sodom. And if you remember last week, back in chapter 13, the author inserted this note in chapter 13 when the city of Sodom came up. And it said, this is a place of great wickedness. And if you know the book of Genesis, when we get to chapters 18 and 19, we see Sodom and Gomorrah as a place of great wickedness. It's actually destroyed. And it's almost like the story is teeing us up for this reality, right? Specifically, it points out not just that not, you know, there's these five kings, and Sodom and Gomorrah are among them, but it's only the, the people from Sodom and Gomorrah that are falling in these bitumen pits, these, these pits of asphalt, and dying a horrible death. It's almost foreshadowing shadowing to us what happens to those that live in the city of wickedness. So we see this king of Sodom. He's a king of wickedness. And when the king of Sodom approaches Abram, instead of being thankful like Melchizedek was, instead of giving him blessing like Melchizedek did, all he does is try to strike a deal with Abram. Basically says, listen, like, give me what's mine, and I'll let you keep all the goodies from the war campaign. So the story is setting us up for something setting us up with a contrast. We see we have a righteous king, a priest of God, who offers Abram God's blessing. And then we have a wicked king who offers Abram the treasures of Sodom. So treasure, because remember, Abram came back with all the riches, not just from Lot, but from Sodom and Gomorrah and all these other places. So the king of Sodom saying, you can have all the riches of Sodom, which you won through battle. Now, I guess there's the possibility that Abram could have taken both, right? He could have accepted the blessing from Melchizedek, and he could have taken the spoils of war from Sodom. He could have taken both. But how he responds to both of the kings shows us something really important to our text. And it shows us that Abram chooses. He chooses to receive blessing from God, and he rejects the treasures of the world. So you'll see in verse 19, the way that he responds to Melchizedek, sorry, uh, verse 20, it says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He tithed to Melchizedek, which was a sign that he honored Melchizedek, that Melchizedek was greater than he was, that he was, he was, and, and Abram was also saying, like, you're, you're legitimate, like your priesthood's legitimate, and this blessing that you're giving me is legitimate. He's basically saying, I accept. 
But then in verses 22 and 23, we see how he responds to the king of Sodom. And I'm going to read this. So I was reading from the ESV. I'm going to read from the CSB. I think it gives us a little bit of a clearer idea of what's happening here. He says to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. Abram frames this, his response to Melchizedek and to the king of Sodom. He frames it in terms of loyalty, and specifically loyalty to God. Abram is resolved he, he is resolved to depend on God for blessing instead of depending on the worldly treasures around him. Like even though what God promised Abram isn't in his hands yet, he doesn't actually physically have the land in his hands yet. His family has not grown. He doesn't even have a son. Sarah is still barren. She can't have children. Even though these blessings from God that he promised him We're not in his hand yet. And even though in contrast to that, he could go home today with a million dollars from Sodom. He still believes in God's promises and chooses to rely on God to bless him. He holds to God. And what we see here in the book of Genesis, from one of the first times since Adam and Eve fell into sin, and sin entered the picture and entered the world, what we see from one of the first times in Genesis is a man living by faith. A guy who lives like he believes that God is better than the immediate pleasures of this world. We see a man who acts as if God's definition of good and evil is the right definition of, good, of what is good and evil. We see a man who did not take what looked good in his own eyes like Lot did, but he had eyes of faith to see that God is the ultimate source of blessing and of all that is good and right. We see a man who believed that ultimate blessing comes to us from God through God's mediator. And for those here this morning... I'll just say, who are maybe exploring this Christianity thing. What we're talking about and what this text is circling around, what we're talking about here touches on what Christians believe is one of the fundamental issues with all of humanity. One of the fundamental issues that Christians believe is going on with all of humanity is that humans, in our sin and rebellion against God, we seek blessing, we seek to be happy, we seek joy and fulfillment outside of God. We want to define good and evil on our own terms, not on God's. We want to call the shots. We exalt created things and created beings over the creator God. We are prone to think that the immediate pleasures of sin are better than the promised pleasures of God. To explain it positively, Christians believe that the way humans can know and receive God's blessing is through the ultimate priest king, through the ultimate mediator whom Melchizedek, as, we, as Jason read in our scripture reading this morning, Melchizedek just points to, to the ultimate priest king, who's Jesus. 
We believe that it is only through God's mediator, Jesus the Messiah, that true blessing comes to those who come to him. The way back to blessing for all of humanity, the, the way to receive God's smile, the way to know forgiveness and cleansing from sin and shame is by honoring and by trusting God's priest king, Jesus. Right? To trust the king of Sodom, to camp in the city of wickedness, to, and eat of its delights will only lead to destruction and not to blessing. And it's important to say that because I think even for those of us who are following Jesus here this morning, it can be so easy to forget that the delights of sin ultimately lead to death. As I was thinking about this this week, it, it reminded me of um, the character Edmund from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the first book in the, in the, well, second, technically, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, there, there's a wicked, in, in the story, that, and some, some of you know the story better than I do, but I'll attempt to tell it anyway. A wicked witch has taken control over the land of Narnia, and she's caused this forever winter to set in. And there's a part in the story where, this, where, where the wicked witch presents one of the characters named Edmund with a temptation that he can't resist. It's a delicious box of Turkish delight. And for a hungry, shivering, lost boy in a foreign land, when he's presented with a box of Turkish delight, I mean, he cannot pass it up. The issue is, is he didn't know what the result of taking it would be. And when he partook of the delightful delicacies of the queen, of the witch, he ended up becoming the witch's slave. And in a similar way, sin often presents us with the promise of immediate pleasure. And that's actually not far from the truth. I think as Christians, we we do need to be realistic that There is a pleasure that sin offers. Wickedness is ripe. It is ready to eat. It did look good in Eve's eyes to take. For Abram, it was tangible. It was right in front of him. He could just take the spoils of Sodom. Immediate blessing. He wouldn't have to wait anymore. He could just get it for himself. And yet, all it would do is lead him to destruction, just like it did for Lot. Brothers and sisters, this is a calling. There's a calling on us through this story, through Abram's example, to live like the promises of God are real. To remain loyal to God because we believe that God and his ways are good, that they are the best The call in our text is a call to reject, for example, the satisfying justice we think will come when we blow up at others who have wronged us. It's it's a call to seek contentment in Christ instead of in a full bank account. 
It's a call to embrace God as our refuge instead of trusting anxiety and worry to bring me the peace that I long for. It's a call to boldly and courageously wait for our feast in Zion instead of filling up on Turkish delight right here, right now. This is a call to live like God's words are not empty, but they are actually true. For us who follow Jesus, the promises of God are not fairy tales. They're not like make-believe. So, so, so when I presented this big idea this morning to live boldly like God's promises are real, I don't put that word like in there because God's promises aren't real and we just kind of have to live in this fake reality like they are real so that we can just like live this self-deceived life and feel better about ourselves. Something that this whole entire text makes clear over and over and over again is that Abram lived like God's promises are real because they are. And that's why we can live and should live like they're real. So as you're reading the whole text, God promised Abram that he would give him this land. So then Abram goes in and he gets victory and God blesses him because he's acting like king over Canaan because God gave it to him. God promised that the blessing of Abram and his descendants would happen. So that's why Lot gets rescued. Because God promised that those who bless Abram would be blessed and those who curse him would be cursed. Because of that, this whole text shows over and over again that those who are close to Abram get blessing. And those who are far from him and work against him receive destruction. What this text presents us with is the reality that God is faithful. His words, brothers and sisters, are not empty. Our faith has a firm foundation. And so in light of that, we can live boldly, courageously, radically by faith. We can live like God's promises are real because they are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promises to us. We thank you that they are real. Would you help us as your people to live in line with them? We pray and ask these things in your name.